Well, please do take a seat. And our passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. If you need a, a Red Church Bible, uh, if you've got a Red Church Bible, that's on page 1130. 1130. And Emily is going to come and read that to us, and then Josh will come and speak and explain that. Thanks, Emily. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Cool. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Dan, and the musicians for leading us this morning. I don't know what you first think when you read or heard those verses just read to you now. When I first saw them, I thought, this this can't be right, surely. What we just heard read, no one is righteous, no one is good. Is this really what we think of the world around us? When I, when I look at you all here this morning, that none of you are righteous. There's not a single good person here this morning. I mean, maybe the very reason you're here this morning is because you're on a journey. You know, we're trying to find God, seeking God. Who is this God we worship? What is Christmas all about? Why are we here? People are coming to seek God, surely. Isn't that why we meet together here this morning? And yet, these verses we just read said that no one seeks God. It says that no one is good. Look at verse 11 and 12. Is what we just read. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good. No one? I know lots of good people, don't you? I live next to good neighbors, not necessarily Christians. But they're nice, good people. We look after each other's homes when we go on holiday or feed the pets or give them a hand to move some furniture when they need it. We do good things. I know good people, don't you? And yet I just read here in our passage that no one is good. I don't understand. What is this talking about? Does the author here not not know the world that we live in? People seek God all the time. There are all sorts of religions around the world. People do good things. What is going on here in these verses? This is a challenge. This is a, a puzzle for us. Let me tell you a little story, just about my wife actually, about Priscilla, and I, she gave me permission to share this. 
She, when she was young, a, um, t- about 10 years old or so, she was like any other 10-year-old girl. Lots of energy, running around the, uh, the playground, playing it with her friends and enjoying life. But very suddenly, over a few months, she found that her usual enthusiasm for life, her, her energy, just very quickly waned and, and it, it disappeared, really. She felt tired all the time. She didn't go out and play it with her friends in the classroom. She couldn't pay attention. She lost her appetite and wouldn't even eat much. And people were worried about her. They were very concerned, and so they they took her to the doctors, did lots of tests to find out why this usual enthusiastic girl has suddenly not got any energy. Her parents kept her home from school at times because... She didn't even have the energy to walk up the few steps onto the school bus to get to school. And that sounds unbelievable, but this is what she's told me. That she felt almost empty of herself, had nothing left to be able to live and do the normal things that you and I take for granted. Many tests came and went and still no one had any clue what was going on. They went to the GP though one day and they saw a different GP than normal. Their usual one wasn't there. And this new GP looked at her symptoms, and they thought of a, a disease, an illness, that, that is quite rare, normally only appears in those who are sort of in their 30s and 40s and older. And yet, they looked very similar in her, this 10-year-old girl. And it's a disease called Addison's disease. And so they sent her off for tests, and sure enough, she came back positive for this illness. Now, Addison's is a, a malfunction of your adrenal gland, which produces a thing called cortisol, a hormone that, that gives you energy just to do everyday things in life, to live, to eat, to sleep. And her body was not producing this hormone anymore. Now, if left without any treatment or cure, this illness would kill her. If you don't have energy to even live, to eat, then she would die. Fortunately, though, there is treatment. There's a cure, in a way. She has to take tablets three times a day of cortisol, and it produces... Uh, it gives her the body, uh, it gives her body what it needs, what doesn't naturally produce itself. And so she's here today and she's very well, you both didn't even know that she had an illness. But you see, once you get the diagnosis right, and once you figure out what is really going wrong with a body, you can have the right treatment or the right cure for you. And her parents for, for a long time were, were very worried and unsure. When you, when you get a diagnosis, you don't know, is this good news or is this bad news? Is there even a treatment for my illness? Fortunately, in this world we live in today, there have been so many medical breakthroughs in all sorts of areas. We can treat and, and cure so many illnesses that have plagued people forever. But what about our passage this morning? What is this passage trying to diagnose in each one of us. If you're given a terrible illness, you don't always know, what do I think about this diagnosis? Firstly, the, good, the, the news may not even be good. It may be bad news. It may not be a cure for the illness that you have. And I'll share this little story about Priscilla. Because having the right diagnosis, it, it really changes everything. If you know what is wrong with your body, then you can find the right treatment to treat it and to cure the illness. Our passage in Romans is going to diagnose us this morning. I'm going to tell you right up front, it's not going to be good news. It's going to be very bad news. Romans 3 is one of the hardest passages to read when you know it's talking about you, when it's talking about me. 
This passage is going to take us to a specialist who's going to look at every single cell in your body, every strand of DNA in you, and it's going to diagnose you. He's going to show you that every neuron, even in your mind, is warped and broken and is not well. It is not good. But, though the diagnosis is very serious and it is very real and very bad, there is a cure. And this cure is 100% effective every single time. It is guaranteed to bring complete healing to yourself, to your spiritual being, to the very core of who you are. But you must first, you must hear the diagnosis. Because without knowing what is wrong, the cure itself won't even work. You need to understand what is wrong with your spiritual health, with your your soul, as it were. We need to understand how ill we really are. So when we look at verse 11 and 12 in chapter 3, we think this can't be right. Surely this doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. That no one is good, no one seeks God. What do you mean? That's nonsense, surely. We look, in, look around, we're in this, this hall full of people seeking God in one way or the other. You go to Christmas fairs at school and you see good mums and dads looking after their kids and helping out for charities and you can't help walking down the street and seeing people asking for money and giving to food banks and doing all sorts of good things around us. What am I missing? The end of verse 9 says that we are all under sin. And even when I look out at you this morning, you you seem quite nice. And yet the Bible says that you're you're all under sin. I, too, am under sin. Verse 10 says there is no one righteous, not even one. And that includes every one of you and me. This is the weightiest truth about humanity that we need to understand. See, this passage is a summary of the first three chapters of Romans, which we've been going through over the past few weeks. And this little summary here, it gives a full body examination about who we are. From our heart, from our mind, the things we seek for, he shows us right down from our head to our toe that we are broken. We don't desire or seek or long for God, the one who made us, who knows us. At our our very center, we're damaged But this book is going to examine us. We're going to be examined by God himself. Firstly, he examines your throat. Verse 13. And he says it's an open grave. He says your throat stinks with the smell of rotting flesh. So it's not easy stuff to hear. There's only death here. He says, says, say ah, hold out your tongue. Let's have a look at you. Oh, there's the problem. Deceit. It's full of deceit. It's completely diseased. The words that come out of your mouth, sure, they can say plenty of nice things and do good, but how easily can our tongues tear people down and cut them up, twist the truth, outright lie and manipulate people to get what we want? Our tongues are diseased. I think of the times when I I say harsh things to people. I try to control myself at times, but every now and again something will slip out and I'll just say what I truly think about someone. And it it hurts, and I'm ashamed that the things I I say at times are so painful, even to the people that I love. Some condescending remark, some hateful gossip that slips off my tongue. Our words are like poison. And that's what Paul says here, like a viper has a sack of venom in its mouth. And if if its fangs were to pierce you, you would feel that poison. It's deadly. 
Our lips can have the same thing, verse 13 says. Our mouths, they're full of cursing and bitterness, anger, jealousy, bullying and hatred. See, I I try, don't I, don't you? I I try to conduct myself with dignity and integrity. I try to control these things like most of us. But even at times I, I find, you know, I get to the end of myself sometimes and maybe someone's having a go at me. And I try to turn the other cheek, I try to do the right thing, but every now and again, I don't. And even when I try to take the high road, I can feel superior. I think, yes, I've done well. But even there, the pride inside me, do you see every part of me is warped? I feel pride at doing the right thing sometimes. Even my supposed good deeds are often done for selfish reasons. And so from, from my gut to my throat to my tongues, my lip, my mouth, every part of me, every part of you... And now to my feet, it says, verse 15. They are swift to shed blood. That, that accusing thought in a moment of anger. I may not literally take blood or, or end someone's life, but, but I might feel it. I wish they were dead sometimes. Someone cuts me up. Verse 16 says, ruin and misery mark our ways. The way of peace they do not know. This world is crying out for peace. Don't you feel that as well? I mean, how many of us today would just love to know real peace, to have a, to, to rest, to be able to, to have a good night's sleep, not to be anxious, not to fear, no, to have peace, yes, with God, but with our neighbors, with our family, with, with my boss, with my bank balance, with my enemies, even with myself, just to have peace. We long for it. The world longs for it. And so these verses, they're, they're diagnosing us. Do you feel that? And it shows how sin affects every single part of our body. It affects the relationships of one another. It affects the whole world that we live in. And that's what it means to be under the power of sin. And yet I'm sorry to say this is not even the worst of it. The diagnosis is not over. You see, there are symptoms that are even worse. Primarily, our biggest problem is our attitude towards God. And, and that's what bookends our passage at the start and at, at the end. Verse 11 at the start says, no one seeks God. And at the end, verse 18 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is what sin is. You and I, from birth, we are in rebellion towards God. Sin, it's not mainly thinking or doing bad things to others, but it's our attitude towards God himself. That's why it's so pointless, I think, when people say that I'm a good person, I do good things, I'm pretty good, I don't steal or kill or lie lie too much, I'm pretty good. I sometimes even give money to charity, you know, I sometimes take in stray cats, I'm a pretty good person. That makes us good, doesn't it? But there's a far more serious test of our spiritual health. And that is, do you love God? Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with your mind, with all of who you are? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus, the son of God? Do you call him your king? Is he your master of your life? Have you surrendered everything to him? He is your creator. 
He is the one that you owe your very existence to. And every breath you take, every think, thought that you, you have, it is all of God. Just, just the, the thought of being in his presence for eternity. We, we sung of that moment when he comes down. Does that, that thought thrill you? Being in his presence forever in a new creation, walking with him in worship and wonder. Does that delight you? Do you long to be with your loving and powerful creator? To please him with every part of your life? Does it thrill you right now to live for him alone? For myself, the answer is no. Not always. That's why this passage can say no one is good. No one really seeks God 100%. It's of no value just to be nice to others, to be a good neighbor. To have no, but when you have no care for God himself. There really is no one who truly seeks God for who God is. And Tim Keller, he was really helpful in explaining this passage. He says, the confusion that we have when we see this, when we wonder, what is it talking about? Surely there are good people. Surely there are some who seek God. He says, these words that the passage uses... They're more directional words. They, they talk about the trajectory of our life, what we're aiming for. And therefore, sin, it's not so much a matter of what you're doing, but it's what you're doing you're doing for, or who you're doing you're doing for. You see, sin, it makes us want to get away from God, to do our own thing, to go away from him, not towards him. This diagnosis in this passage is right. Every single part of us, my heart, just bad things. So, and even the good things I do, I don't do for him, but I think I do it for myself. No one seeks God for who God is. No one is righteous. No one is really looking to do good for goodness sake, or for, good, for God's sake, or even for other people's sake. The good we do so often, it's for my own sake. I was baptized when I was a teenager. I was about 15 years old, and it was in the Waikato River in New Zealand. It was a day of pouring with rain, and I went into the river, and we got baptized, and almost everyone watching me did as well, because it was so heavy with rain. And I think, I remember that, that day, I was doing something good, I thought, being baptized as an act of obedience, we're called to do this, as we decide to follow the Lord Jesus, it's a mark of obedience, to show that we are committed to following our Savior, and yet I distinctly remember going into that baptism, I had all sorts of issues going on in my life. And I actually thought that if I did this, if I got baptized, then that would really fix things. I thought that the issues that I had, the problems that I struggled with, they would be gone because I was doing something really good for God. And things would be all right after that. But they weren't. Even doing something really good, like being baptized, which is a good and a thing we're commanded to do, Even that, I was doing for my own sake rather than really for the Lord's. You see, in my life and in all our lives, that even in trying to do good and trying to obey God, our motives, that they're all mixed up. We try to please ourselves rather than ultimately please the God who made us. The things we do, we try to do it to make our own lives easier. And if I can do that with a simple act like baptism then we can do that with any part of our life. Any good deed in our lives can be done for our own pleasure and our own satisfaction to look, make ourselves look good. And this whole concept is what 
people call total depravity. It means every part of us is broken, is totally depraved. It means that the world is not filled with good people and and bad people or, or better or worse people, but that all of humanity, all of us, are lost, totally depraved. We are people who need salvation. We are sinful to our core. No matter how hard or successful we might be at being good from birth, we are lost. I don't know how else to get this across. This is, it should be the most humbling thing to hear. You see, we desperately, we want to think that there's something worthy in us. Just, just a little bit of good. Surely. Now you dig through the, this little lump of coal and find something beautiful inside. Surely there's something of worth in us. If we could just strip away the dross and all the distractions, then we'll get to that, you know, the good nature that's in each one of us. But the serious truth is that there's none. This diagnosis shows us that. And until you get this, until you really understand what this means, you can never be cured. No treatment will work. No religion will save you. As long as you think you're okay with God, then you will never be okay. So how do we get the cure? What is the treatment? Where does this leave us? Well, look at verse 19 in our passage. Now we know, it says, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. How does the treatment begin? Starts here. Your mouth must be silenced. Before we hear the good news of a righteousness that's made available through Christ, that's verse 21 onwards, before that you must be silent. And we need to get to this point first. You see, Paul's three chapters, and these are long chapters, and they're all pretty much saying the same thing. He's trying to drill this home, that you will never be able to receive the salvation that Jesus offers unless you shut up spiritually, unless your mouth is silenced and says nothing. And saying nothing, it really is saying nothing. It's not beating yourself up and saying, oh, I've I've done wrong again, I'm such a mess. No, be silent. You're still centered on yourself. Be silent. You have to get to the end of yourself. See, the only way to be pulled out of this self-righteousness of sin is to see the pit that you're in. You are utterly helpless. Be silent. You must be empty of all yourself. You not only have to be sorry for your sin, but you need to be sorry for the very reason that you did anything good in your whole life. Which means you have nothing to do but be silent. Tim Keller, again, he puts this brilliantly where he says, all you need is need. And that's what it is to be silenced. To have nothing. To be completely needy. All you need is need. But most of us, I struggle to be in that place. When, when we're truly silenced, when we, when we get the diagnosis that this passage is revealing to us, that our situation is far worse than you could ever imagine, 
Only then do you begin to see that our God is far more gracious than you could ever imagine. And he longs to lift us up out of the pit. And he will lift, he will do all the work because all we need is to need him. Most religions, they think God says, here are the rules, try do this, follow that, stick to them, I'm sure you'll be able to find me. In other words, most religions say that salvation is, is you trying to find God. But verse 20 says, no one can be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, by doing things. All the law can do is silence you. And it makes you conscious of your sin, your total depravity. And only when you're silenced do you see what Christianity is all about. True salvation, true religion, is God seeking and finding you. See, that's what Christmas is all about. God coming into this world to rescue a broken people, a needy people, an utterly helpless people. He comes down to this hopeless world of people in despair who are silenced by their own need. Now, if you're on a journey this morning, maybe you're here at church today trying to find God. You're close. You really are. But you need to be silent. Trying to fix your life up, trying to make it all okay, and then I'll be able to find God. That's not going to help. Only once you're at the end of yourself, when your mouth is silenced, and you see how great your need really is, only then can you receive the cure. Only then. All you need is need. That's what this passage is trying to show us here this morning. What about if you've been walking, though, this journey for quite a long time? What if you're a Christian this morning and you've known what it is to be at the end of yourself? To be in absolute need. You're aware of all your sin. The longer you walk with the Lord, often you find your sinful nature to be even greater than you ever imagined. Well, this morning, what does the Lord say to you, to us? Romans, this book... This was written to a mixed church full of all sorts of people at different points on their journey. But there's a particular danger, I think, for those who have been walking with the Lord for some time. Near the end of this letter in Romans, in chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. You see, it's such a joy to have your heart changed by God, so that it now delights in him for who he is. To be able to delight in his word, and being able to offer the new life that he's given you as as a spiritual sacrifice back to God. It's a joy. But there's this subtle danger that comes with knowing the Lord Jesus. And that while we can only begin our Christian life by being silenced, knowing that all you need is need, it's very easy then to think that 
the good works that he's prepared for us to do are, are something that, that I'm actually doing myself. How easily we begin to feel that, that God's grace towards us is some sort of reward for some sort of long-serviceness. We almost think we have a right or an expectation to receive his grace to us. Or my victory over some particular sin is down in part to my own success, my own patient endurance. Maybe I'm not as bad as I once thought I really was. Paul, the author of this book, he warns the church. He says, if you're thinking, if you think that you're standing firm, beware, lest you fall. You must always hear the words of this morning, that he is all you need. He's all you will ever need. We need passages like this to bring us back to reality. So that the whole world, it says, might be held accountable to God. So it doesn't hurt to go back to the doctor again and to hear that diagnosis once more. Was I really that sick? I seem okay now. No, you were. We are very sick. Oh, I'm not sure I still need that treatment anymore. Things seem to be going okay right now. No, you'll never be sure without God. This is the lifelong illness, this sinful nature of ours. All you need is need. To be in that place at the end of yourself, knowing that there is a cure for our illness. This passage is right. There is no one who is righteous. There's no one who does good. We are all under the power of sin. We need to remember that again this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to come to this table and see the hope that the cure brings. Let's pray. Lord God, I need you. Lord, help me to remember how desperately I need you. For everyone here this morning who's not aware that they need you, Lord, break their pride. Silence our mouths. Our lives are in your hands. We we cannot live an hour without you, God. No love can be great enough. No praise can be high enough. No service can be good enough for you. Lord, you are not a God to be neglected or dallied with or a God to be resisted or provoked. Lord, you are almighty. You are our Lord. You are the creator. You are the king. Silence our mouths before you. Oh Lord, humble us once again. Break us. Show us our sin. Please move us, Lord. Let us not be unchanged as we hear your word. Lord, awaken your church to the wonder of who you are. Lord, through faith, we can come through the Lord Jesus and find salvation in you. When you come and rescue us. Lord, I pray that each person here would repent and call on you as their saviour and their king. You will show us our sin and our great need of you. When you pray this in the mighty name, the name above all names, of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm aware that I've called you into the doctor's room, as it were, and I've given you a rather bad news. I've explained how this treatment begins. 
But that's not the finished story. And next week, we're going to see the rest of this chapter, which is such good news, the cure for our illness.